Final week of Advent, Christmas this week, Christmas Eve this week, the first ever COVID Christmas that we've had in our history. One good thing that I thought about this week in the midst of COVID and the Christmas season, Christmas is always a time in which we all have to kind of watch our weight a little bit and we usually watch it do this. With the absence of parties and the absence of get-togethers, there's been fewer goodies and probably a little better health. If we hadn't had all those months of isolation prior to, we'd probably be in the best shape of our lives right now. I have so many mixed emotions as, as I start into this Christmas week. I'm excited to celebrate the reality of Christ coming to earth. Because I know that as we focus our attention on worshiping the coming king, that that's, that's, that's the hope that we all need in our soul in these days. And that's the hope that the world needs as well. But yet in reality, as Paul just mentioned, that there, there's just a damper on everything that we do because of the COVID and because of the political things that we've just been through and the, the churning within society, it just, it just puts a damper on our feelings and we, and we tend to just kind of draw ourselves into a shell and, and, and not want to feel because we don't want to feel hurt or feel alone or feel left out. And yet the reality of this season is this is a season of hope because the reality is the sovereign God of the universe that was under no obligation whatsoever to save a fallen race of man, put his son in the form of a baby and sent him to earth. Contemplate the reality of that. I was talking to somebody this morning and, and we were <laughs> exchanging some theological questions about at what point in Jesus' life do you think that he realized he was the son of God? How old do you think he was? I don't know. Because the fact was, he was fully God enclosed in a fully human body. And how those two things work together, we can't comprehend. We just can't. And so as we start into this Christmas week, I just, that, I love the phrase of that song that we just sang, from a throne in endless glory to a cradle in the, in the dirt. That's the story of Christmas. So this morning we want to look at one more account of a table in Scripture. And actually next week we're going to talk about a table as well. Um, I just, we, we didn't have that as part of the series, but as, as I have prayed through where we need to be and what we need to, to talk about, and um, we're going to talk about a table next week as well. But anyway, we want to look at the account of Jesus at the Pharisees' table in Luke chapter 14. And so if you want to turn your attention there, um, before we get into the passage that's specific, I want to just give you some context about what was going on, because all of these details are important when we get to the actual story that we want to look at. I want to have a word of prayer as we begin. Father, we pray for these moments ahead as we focus our attention on your word. We recognize that it's only as the Spirit of God opens our spiritual eyes that we can learn and glean from you. And so we pray that that would be the case. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. 
and would speak those things into each of our hearts based on where you as God know that we are. Whether we need encouragement, whether we need refinement, whether we need to be drawn up short because we're not where we should be with you. Would you do the work that you know needs to be done in each life this morning? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in Luke chapter 14, nearly the entire chapter, at least the first 24 verses, is about this story and this event. And so the first thing I want to draw your attention to is verse 1 of that 14th chapter. And I don't have these verses on the slides. I just kind of want to go through them uh, briefly. It says this, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So the first thing that's significant about this story is that it was on the Sabbath. It was on the Jewish day of rest, in which they gathered together as a family or gathered together in in groups of people. They enjoyed a meal together. There was no work to be done on that day. It was a day to focus on the reality of their religious life, a day of rest. Jesus was gathered at a prominent Pharisee's house. Um, Almost in this context, he was eating with the enemy. I mean, these were the ones that were trying to trick him and get him to say something that they could condemn. And so the place that Jesus was, was a, a place of awkwardness. We're told later on in the passage that there were Pharisees and experts in the law. This was the Jewish religious elite that were gathered there with Jesus on that day. We're told that Jesus was being carefully watched, not because they wanted to learn from him, but rather because they wanted to catch him in something that he said or something that he did. And so the first thing that we're told that occurred is that there was a man there in their midst that had abnormal swelling in his body. And so Jesus turned to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and he said, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? They remained silent didn't answer, not a word, because they knew if they answered, Jesus would catch them and they would look foolish. And so they kept silent. So Jesus took hold of the man and he healed him on the Sabbath, which they took note of, but they spoke not a word. And then Jesus says something else to them. If any one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Their answer, silence not a word, didn't have anything to say. And as Jesus sat there and he watched people coming and going and gathering the table, gathering at the table, he noticed that when people came in the door, they immediately migrated to the front of the table closest to the host. They tried to take the seats of honor. They wanted to be sat close to the head of the table. And so Jesus confronted them about that, and he said, it's wiser when you come into someone's house to sit at the lower places at the table so that if the host chooses, he can say, come on up here, because it would be humiliating to you if you chose a place near the head of the table and the host had to say, please take a seat lower down because I have somebody else that wants to sit there. And again, the Pharisee said nothing. And then the final thing that Jesus had to say before we get into this parable was that he turned and he spoke to the host, to the Pharisee that was hosting that dinner that day. And he said, you know, really, when you have a luncheon or a dinner or a banquet, you should invite the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind, those people that have nothing that could not possibly pay you back because great 
will be your reward in heaven, and you'll be blessed because of that. Because if you invite all your friends, most likely they'll invite you, and you'll be paid back for your time and effort. But it's better to invite those that have no way to repay. And the same thing was true. Um, The Pharisees observed what Jesus had to say. And so we come to the text that we want to look at this morning, the parable of the great banquet. And, And the first thing that we see is that the very first thing that one of the Pharisees said in the whole context of this story was that he made a proclamation. He issued a statement. And we find that in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. First statement the Pharisees made. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I, I pondered over the last couple of weeks why this Pharisee would say that. Why would that be the first thing that came to their mind or the first thing that... And, and I couldn't help but wonder if maybe he made that statement with the expectation that Jesus would give them kudos or affirm them because of their great religious maturity. He was fishing for a compliment. Or perhaps Jesus would say to them, well, surely all of you will be gathered at that place. But Jesus didn't say either of those things. Instead, as a master teacher, he started with the statement that they made, and he told a parable. I want to stop there for a moment and just encourage any of you that know Christ as your Savior. If you want to know how you can share with those around you the hope that you have within you, this is the principle that Jesus used, and it is the easiest way to share the gospel. It's not about sharing a tract. It's not about giving out the gospel. It's about starting at the point of interest that somebody has that doesn't know Christ. He started with a statement that the Pharisee made, and he built around that to bring about the message that he wanted to portray. And during this Christmas season, everybody in your circle of influence is under stress. And if we are cognizant and aware of that, and we listen and we're led by the Holy Spirit, we can start at their point of concern, at their point of fear, at their point of uncertainty and what's going on in the world around them, and we can lead them to the Savior. Just what Jesus did. So simple and natural, it just flowed. Back to the story. So the Pharisee makes the proclamation, and then Jesus gives them this parable. And I want to go ahead and read the account, and we'll go back and look at it. Beginning with verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. 
Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So after the proclamation of the Pharisee, Jesus tells that parable. And the first thing we notice in the story is the invitation. The invitation of the host, the man or the person or the king or the person of of notoriety that was preparing this banquet. And he extended an invitation for people to come. I'm making preparations. I'm getting everything. You don't have to do anything but show up. Don't need to bring anything. You just need to come. He issued an invitation. Come and enjoy. Come and enjoy the preparations that I have made. And then we see in verses 18 through 20, a wholehearted declining of those invitations. And notice the excuses that they used. They were all discretionary excuses. Um, Could not the land be checked out the next day? I mean, it's land. It's not going anywhere. No, it had to be done that day. I just got five yoke of oxen. I've got to try them out. Today? That's be done today? And finally, I just got married, so I can't come. Not I'm getting married today, so I can't come, but I just got married, so I can't come. And so those that were specifically invited to the banquet, after the man had made all the preparations, found excuses and found reasons to not attend. And so the host, it says, became angry, as you would expect. I suspect any of our wives or any of us that made a lot of preparations and then people all backed out at the last time, that would be frustrating. Angry is probably the right emotion. And so the conclusion of the story or the parable that Jesus gave was the host's response. He became angry, but he didn't let his anger control the rest of his responses. Rather, he said, well, go find people that are willing to come. The first list of people that they were to invite is exactly the same list that Jesus encouraged the Pharisee as to who he should invite to his banquet. The the poor the lame, the blind, the crippled. And then the servant came back to the host and said, we still have room. And so the host, in his wisdom, said, I want you to find anybody that will come because I've made all these preparations. I have room. The chairs are all empty. The table is full. I want the fullness of this room, of my place, I want people to come. I want every seat to be full because I've already made the preparations. And so that's what they did. As I've prayed through and looked through this story the last couple weeks, I see three applications, three things that I I believe that that we can glean out of this story this parable that Jesus told. And, and the first one is, is, is probably the most common. It's because it's culturally correct and it's, it's in, the, in, in the culture of what Jesus was, 
was dealing with in terms of the Pharisees and the Jewish community, and that was the application of the chosen. Jesus came as the Messiah to His own people. We're told in, in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and, th- and, th- and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so in the parable, in his first application, God was the host. He made every provision necessary for His chosen people, Israel, to be made right once again in His eyes. He sent Jesus as a Messiah so that ultimately His death would do away with the need of all the animal sacrifices and all the things that had been such cumbersome worship throughout the history of Israel. He invited them to the feast at the end of the age, as it were making every preparation. All they had to do was accept the invitation. And yet, God was met with excuses. We were expecting a political Messiah, somebody that would come in with a strong army and and overthrow the Roman Empire and set up His kingdom here in which we, His chosen people, would be the centerpiece of that and the rest of the world would revolve around us. This isn't what we were expecting. It's not what we pictured. They made excuses. They made excuses why they didn't accept and recognize the Savior, the Messiah that had come. And for those that didn't recognize and accept Jesus' invitation, God's invitation, the last phrase, that last verse of the passage we just read is true for them. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The wedding feast of the Lamb, that gathering together of Christ and His bride, the church, at the end of the age, none of those children of Israel who rejected His invitation and rejected the Messiah will be part of that feast around that table in the kingdom. The second, inv- the second application that I see in this passage is one of the greater invitation to fallen humanity. It's a picture of what God did for every one of us, for we as Gentiles, not part of God's chosen people. God invites us to that banquet at the end of the age. He invites us to come into a relationship with Him in which He has made every provision. All we have to do is come, accept the death of His Son Jesus, accept what He did for us on the cross, invite Him into our heart and in our lives, and we can be part of that banquet table at the end of the age. But in the same way as when the chosen people of Israel rejected and didn't come and didn't accept the invitation, if we don't accept that invitation, then that phrase is true that was true of God's chosen people. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. We have a choice in this life to accept God's invitation 
to come to the table and accept the preparations that he's made from us in Jesus Christ or to reject that. I couldn't help but think of the excuses that we use about why we don't need God in our lives. You know, religion is nothing more than a crutch for, reach, for, for, for needy people. It's just a crutch. It's just something they, they, they fall on. I don't need God in my life. I can take care of things on my own. You know, the church is it's just full of hypocrites. I don't need that. I don't need that. And so we use excuses to shy away from and disregard the invitation that the God of the universe makes to invite us to accept the preparations that he's made so that we can enjoy that feast in his kingdom. The last application that I want to draw your attention to is one that's a little different in that I entitled this The Invitation of the Called because I believe there is a, a circumstance in each of our lives that have, has trusted Christ in which we don't live in the fullness of the preparation and the adequacy that God has made for us. I want to read for you Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 4 through 7, some that Christine referred to this morning. Verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, we have a seat at the table at the wedding feast of the Lamb when the kingdom comes about and Jesus is finished with the work that God gave him to do. That table is secure because it's secure in the adequacy of Christ's death and his resurrection, and we can count on that. We're going to be part of that. We're told here that we're seated in the heavenly places. That can't be taken away. We're right before God because of what Jesus Christ did. And yet the reality is Every single day that we walk this Christian life, God the Father extends an invitation to us to enjoy and walk in the fullness of the provisions that He has made for us in this life. And in what is my response many times to that invitation? I'm too busy. Too many other things going on in my life. I have a field to look at. I have oxen to try out. I just got married and I can't participate. And so even though our seat at the table in eternity is secure, we live in a place of want in this life because we reject the invitation of God to rest and enjoy the fullness of what He's provided for in this life. The Holy Spirit in our hearts 
this word of God that we can turn to at any given time, other believers that we can be encouraged with, the fact that we can bow on our knees or turn our face heavenward and talk to the God of the universe. Those are the preparations that God has made for we as believers in this life. And yet we don't take advantage of those. It tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that I have granted to you, my children, all things pertaining to life and godliness. God has made every preparation for us to live in this life in victory and celebration. And yet, I keep his invitation at arm's length because I have too many other things that I allow to come into my life. God is not the centerpiece of my life. God is an add-on to my life. And so consequently, we're going to enjoy the feast in, the year to, in, in, in eternity to come, but spiritually, we're starving in this life because we're not walking in the adequacy that God wants us to enjoy and to have. And so this morning, Jesus' parable has two main applications for those of us here. Those that were invited. You know, we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God desires no one to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so for those of you that may be here or listening online that have never put your faith and trust in Christ, that invitation is for you. That invitation is for you. God doesn't want anybody to not be included in that celebration at that table in the kingdom of God. But you have to accept the invitation. You have to accept the invitation. And and that means coming to God and saying, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that you're a holy God and I can't match up. I can't meet up to your expectations. And so I put my faith, I put my trust in the fact that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place in his blood is adequate sacrifice to cleanse my heart and make me right in your eyes. God made every preparation. All we have to do is accept that invitation. And then for those of us that are believers, are we walking in this life in the reality of the adequacy and the preparation that God has made? He wants us to walk in victory. He doesn't want us to walk discouraged and and, and defeated. All things pertaining to life and godliness. There's no part of this Christian life that He has not given us resources and made preparations for us to enjoy. It's there for us. We just have to accept the invitation. So that's the choice and that's the question we have before us. I was thinking... This week, as I knew that it was communion, and and there again, another table, as we've talked about all during this Advent season. And as we prepare our hearts for the communion table, I want to read those same verses along with a couple others in Ephesians once again, as we think about this table that God has given for those of us that know Christ to celebrate what He has done for us. Let me read for you, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Stop right there. 
dead. We were dead. What kind of emotion, what kind of desire does a dead person have? None. None. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. From the time that Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, mankind stands under the wrath of God. We're born into that. Sin is part of our nature. Rebellion against God. Deserving of wrath. But... Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. So the significance of this table is that God pursued us. This isn't our idea. His sacrifice wasn't our idea. God took all of the initiative because of His great love for us. He came to us. He made all the preparations, sending Jesus into this world as a baby to die on a cross, to be raised from the grave. He made every preparation so that we could live in fellowship with Him. He made us alive. He took that which was dead spiritually, us, and He made us alive so that we could have fellowship and interaction with a holy God because of Christ's death on the cross. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We were dead. We were dead. And because of what Christ did, not only are we made alive, but it tells us that we are seated in the heavenly realms. Spiritually, that's how God sees us once we've come in repentance and accepted the death of Jesus Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God was under no obligation to do any of that, and yet He chose to. In order that in coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's what this table represents the preparations that God made for us to be made right in His eyes. So I would encourage you as we partake of this table together that if you're a child of God, if you put your faith and trust in Him, if you know because of that acceptance of Jesus' death on the cross and His blood being the sacrifice that makes us right in God's eyes, if, if, if you've accepted that and you're, and you're God's child, then we invite you to partake at this table. This is not a, a, a denominational thing or a church thing. This is about, it's a kingdom thing. It's about sons and daughters of God coming to recognize and acknowledge and worship what Christ has done for us. And so, as always, we'll just encourage you to come up the center aisles and go down the side aisles. Spend a few moments in contemplation and examining your hearts, as we're told in Scripture to do prior to taking this together. But it would be my prayer that as we contemplate this week of Christmas and Christmas Eve and the celebration of the coming Messiah, that this would be a meaningful time in which we acknowledge the fact that our God 
has made every preparation for us and invites us to the banquet. And all we have to do is accept that invitation and come. I'm going to pray, and then as you feel led, you can come to the table and worship. Let's pray. Father, it humbles my heart to think of the fact that I deserve nothing from you. Nothing but wrath and judgment and eternity apart from you in the, in the pits of hell. And yet, because you're a merciful, loving God, you set in place a plan that would make it possible for me to be reconciled to you. Through the coming of your son Jesus in the form of a baby, serving you miraculously throughout the course of his life and dying undeservedly on a cruel cross. You thought of that from the very beginning. You made every plan and preparation to bring that about. I just stand in awe of that. How could you love me? How could you love us like that? God, would you quicken each of our hearts today as we partake of this remembrance of this celebratory table with you. May we stand in awe that we are loved and provided for by the sovereign, holy God of the universe, through Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray.